Shalom and welcome to Shomer Mitzvot, Torah Observant, a series on practical messianic living and apologetics. I'm the author, Torah teacher Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Torah observance is a matter of the heart. It always has been and always will be. The Torah proper instructed the people of Israel to love Adonai your God with all your heart, with all your being, and with all your resources. This is where Shomer Mitzvot begins, by loving Hashem and accepting Him on His terms. By this, I mean accepting His means of covenant obedience. For today, this means acceptance of Yeshua, His only Son, for Jew and non-Jew alike. Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Exegeting Galatians, a Messianic Jewish commentary. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Let's open with a word of prayer. Avinu Malkeinu, our Father, our King. Lord, we're here once again, and we are ready to listen to what you have to say to us. We read your words, and we rely on your Spirit with perfect faith that you have promised that you would give us an understanding. It may not be the complete understanding that we're hoping for at the time. It may be just a little here and a little there. Uh, but we are confident as we, at, that as we continue to press in, that you'll um, uh, help us to uh, understand with the ability to uh, do your will and to be pleasing to you. Uh, for indeed, it is through this transformation of the mind that we are able to continue to do your will. That's what Paul tells us in Romans 12. Be, he beseeches us uh, uh, by the mercies of God. Uh, what does he say? I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you, be, uh, that you renew your mind, that you be transformed uh, by the renewing of your mind. I'm, I'm kind of butchering the verse there, but the idea is that, Lord, it, it is by your Spirit that we are continually transformed and, and molded and, and, and modeled into the, the, the pattern of Messiah. And uh, we know that he had the perfect mind. We know that he had the mind that sought to please you and to obey you and to uh, to do your will. So we want to be like that. We want to follow in the footsteps of our Master Yeshua. So give us a heart and a desire to to uh, do what you would like us to do, what you're asking us to do. Uh, help us to be bold in our witness. Give us uh, divine opportunities to share our testimony with those around us. Uh, help us not to, um, to be shy, but uh, to just speak what is on our heart. Uh, it may not be eloquent. It may not be... Um, it may not sound life-changing, but uh, we're not the ones who change the heart anyway. It's it's the agency of the Ruach HaKodesh. It's the Holy Spirit who opens the eyes and, and unlocks the ears so that the people that we're sharing with can hear and receive the good news. And so give us these opportunities. Uh, continue to bless each and every uh, student that has joined with me during these adventures through the books of Gla- through the uh, book of Galatians. I pray that you'll uh, enlarge their capacity to understand as well. And uh, we'll be careful to give you the praise and the glory for all of these things. B'Shem Yeshua. Amen. Okay, well, thank you, everyone, for joining me once again. I am Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. I'm a Torah teacher out at Congregation Kehilat Tunava in Thornton, Colorado, and I'm coming to you live from around the world. Wow, that sounds so... Sounds so nebulous, but I, I mean, sometimes I just assume that, that I can just turn on my computer, put on my headphones, 
open up Skype and start talking to people and that everything's going to work fine. But there's always technical difficulties from time to time. There's always a possibility that none of this is going to work at all. But uh, by God's grace, I'm able to reach you week by week. Uh, every Saturday evening from about 7 p.m. to about 8 p.m. Central Standard Time. If you're listening to this commentary as an MP3 audio file, for instance, say on uh, iTunes Web Store or on uh, on my web, one of my websites, uh, graftedin.com or tatesator.com, well, then you're certainly welcome to join us live each Saturday evening. Just um, head on over to my website at tatesator.com. Click on the Galatians commentary link near the top of the page, and all of the relevant information can be found there for joining the weekly live study. Uh, you do need Skype, but you don't even really need to have an account. You can join as a guest if you'd like. Okay? All right. Um, that being said, let's date stamp our recording. Today is June, what is this? August. Wow, we're just moving through this year so fast. This is August the 5th, 2017, and this is week 69 meaning next week would normally be our last week in the 10-week triad where we go for 10 weeks and then we take a break for two weeks. But because the material tonight is going to bring us to the end of Galatians chapter 3, I've decided to move our break uh, period up one week. So um, tonight will be the last in our 10-week. We'll take a break after tonight, and uh, we won't meet for two more weeks. We'll pick up again after two weeks. So that way we'll be ready to start fresh with Galatians chapter 4. It's kind of a more natural break for us, okay? So tonight we're at week 69. We'll start next week with week uh, 70 and just start with Galatians chapter 4 from there. Okay, for those of you who are with me in the live study tonight, you should have screen sharing enabled if you're on your computer or smartphone or, or tablet device or whatever. Maybe you're joining me on a smart TV or something, I'm not sure. should be able to see the screen. I've got um, a passage out of the Tanakh, uh, specifically the Torah uh, book of Deuteronomy pulled up, and we're going to use this passage again. Um, we like to turn to it from time to time because of its relevance to the the overall uh, context of the book of Galatians and this idea of um, challenging the readers of the Galatians with with their understanding of the covenants with Abraham and Moshe. And uh, we're going to use this passage out of the book of Deuteronomy to remind us of, of one of the covenant details that we find in the book of Moshe, in the books of Moshe, particularly the book of Deuteronomy. So we got Deuteronomy chapter 6, and I've read this in the past, so this isn't anything new for any of you. Deuteronomy 6, and we'll just cut a large piece out of the uh, chapter by starting in verse 16 and going all the way to the end of the chapter, verse 25. So those 10 or so verses, something like that. Um, let's start with the ESV English. I think what I'll try and do this time, I'll do something a little different. I've got the uh, Blue Letter Bible dot org website pulled up uh, it's been it's been a little faster to me late, lately than the uh, the one I usually use Bible hub it's been a little slow I'm not sure what they're doing but their site's moving slow for me so I'll just jump over to a different site Deuteronomy 6 we're going to start in verse 16 and what I'll do is I'll read the English out of the ESV and then I'll just uh, click on the verse and it'll show us the Hebrew and I'll read that and then I'll read the English, then I'll read the Hebrew, and we'll go like that. And then we'll do the same for when we get to the uh, Apostolic Scripture selection as well, okay? Does that work? All right, so Deuteronomy 6.16 starts out, and most Bibles put this as the beginning of this kind of paragraph, meaning it's kind of a section break uh, as well. So, 
It starts out with, you sh verse 16 says, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massah. And the Hebrew reads, Lo tenasu et Adonai Elohekam ka'asher nisitem ba Massah. And verse 17, You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes which he has commanded you. And the Hebrew reads, Shemor tishmurun et mitzvot Adonai Elohechem ve'edotayv ve'hukayv asher tzivach. And verse 18 reads, oops, let's get the English first. Uh, the English says, And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may go well with you, and that you may go in and take possession of the good land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And the Hebrew say, verse 18 says, Va'asitav ha yashar hatov be'enei Adonai lema'an yitav lach uvata va'yarashta et ha'aretz atova asher nishba Adonai la'avotecha. Verse 19. Uh, by thrusting out all your enemies from before you as the Lord has promised, le'chadof et kol oivecha Mifpnecha ka'asher diberer Adonai. Verse 20. When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? And the Hebrew says, Ki olcha vincha machar lemor ma ha'edot v'hahukim v'hamishpatim asher tziva Adonai Eloheinu etchem. And verse 21, Then you shall say to your son, We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. The Hebrew says, and the Lord showed signs and wonders great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And the Hebrew says, Vaitein Adonai otot muftim gudolim b'raim b'mitzraim b'faro uchol beto l'eneinu. And verse 23, almost done here. Verse 23, And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in to give us and give us the land that he swore to give our fathers. He, remember, Moshe is still answering this question that the sons might ask in time to come, what's the meaning of these laws, these testimonies? And Moshe is kind of giving this mini recount of the, of the exodus from Egypt and the, the idea that God's going to bring them into the land. So basically, in, in a nutshell, it's, as I understand it, it's an answer to the question of why did God give us the commandments? And there's a direct link of giving the commandments and keeping them for Israel's part and God, for his part, bringing them into the land of promise. Right. So, that's why it's linked to the Passover. Or I'm sorry, to the uh, the Exodus, because God can't give them the land until they're uh, uh, delivered from Egypt. Makes sense. So, um, he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give our fathers. Verse 23, the Hebrew says, V'otanu uh, chutzi misham l'ma'an havi otanu l'tet lanu et ha'aretz asherer Nish ba la avotinu. And then verse 24 says, um, 
And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our, good, our God for our good always, that we might preserve us alive as we are this day. Uh, the Hebrew says, and the final Pasek, the final verse, verse 25, and this was the one that we highlighted a few different times after we read this verse, and it will be righteousness for us. Interesting that Moshe describes a kind of righteousness that we're going to talk about later on tonight. It will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. The Hebrew says, Alright, and we've already talked about this uh, briefly, about this righteousness. I'm not going to get into it right now. After the study tonight, which should be short, we're only going to hit three verses tonight, and it's only like one page or something. It's a real short part to a uh, conclusion to chapter 3 as I uh, see it. And then we're, I'm going to take some time to discuss a topic that uh, um, one of my other students in, this, in the class brought to my attention last week, and I'll talk about it with the other students here and see if uh, it can bring to light an issue that perhaps maybe some confusion that I'm causing to some students. So, all right, so that's the uh, the reading out of the uh, the Tanakh. Let's turn now to our liturgy for the um, the Apostolic Scriptures, the New Testament. We'll do the same thing. We'll see if this doesn't uh, stress my brain out too much. Um, we'll read English and Hebrew, or English and Greek, then English and Greek. We'll go like that, okay? I'll try that this time. If this doesn't seem to work, I'll just switch back to reading all English and all Greek like I normally do. All right, so Galatians 3, we'll start in verse 19. We'll read all the way down to the end of the chapter. Again, a big swath, just like we did in Hebrew. And we're, this is to go back to get the context about this discussion about the function of the law and its relevance for the uh, covenant made with Abraham, the covenant of promise. How do the, how do the two fit together? How are they uh, complementary to one another? Or how do they contradict one another, as your average Christian might think they do? Okay, let's see. Contrast one another. Uh, Galatians 3.19, Why then the law? This is ESV again. Paul says, It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. The Hebrew, I'm sorry, the Greek says, Tiun honamas, ton parabasion, charen prasetethe achris u elthen to sperma ho epengeltai diatagis di angelon en cheri mesitu. Verse 20. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. The Greek says, Verse Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not, for if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. The Greek says, Agar adathe namos ho dunamanas zobwesai hantos ek namu an en he dekaiusune. And verse 22. But the scriptures imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ 
might be given to those who believe. Uh, the Greek says, Alasuna klesin hygrafe tapanta hupahamartian hinehe pangelia ek pistios Jesu Christu dothe tois pistiusin. Verse 23. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. The uh, verse 23 in the Greek says, Pro tu de elthain tain piston hupanaman ephrurumitha sun kleamenoi eis tain melusan piston apokalufthainai. Verse 24. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. The Greek says, Hoste honamas pedagogas hemon geganen eis Christon hina ek pistios dikaiothomen. Verse 25. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. The Greek says, Elthuses de tepistios uketi hupa pedagogon esmen. Verse 26. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. The Greek says, Pantes gar wioi theu est dia tepistios in Christo Jesu. And verse 27 reads, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Uh, the Greek says, Hosoi gar eis Christon ebaptisthete, Christon enedusaste. Verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. The Greek says, Uk eni eudaios ude helen, uk eni doulos ude eleutheros, uk eni arsen kai thelu. Pantes gar humes eis esten en Christo Jesu. And the final posic, the final verse, verse 29, his conclusion, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. The Greek says, e de himes Christu ara tu Abraham, sperma este kat epangelian kleronamoi. And we'll stop there. Okay, let's go back and unpack the few verses that we're going to be looking at tonight. We're going to look at only at verse 25. Uh, I think it's 25, 28, and 29. Let me look at my commentary. 25, 28, and 29. Yeah, that's the only three verses that I pulled out that were that I seem to have recalled that um, your average um, Christian uh, reader might take issue with your average uh, Torah-pursuant believer. So we got two kinds of people going on in my uh, limited analogy that I'm uh, comparing and contrasting, as it were. I've got the traditional Christian exegesis of the book of Galatians, which teaches a general um, sense of the idea that Paul was uh, concerned for the Galatian Christians uh, returning to or turning to uh, Torah observance, Torah obedience, after coming to faith in Christ. And the, the traditional Christian commentators to the book of Galatians believe that um, the villains of the piece, the, 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 the opponents of Paul, the, which are typically called the Judaizers by most Christians, are these Jewish Christians uh, which were either um, real believers, genuine believers or not genuine believers, but uh, either way, they're these Jewish 
Jewish people, whether they're Christians or not, has some debate, but they're Jewish people who are uh, saying that faith in Jesus is not enough to justify a person. You must also bring in obedience to the law. And so most Christian commentaries believe that the message of the Judaizers is that it's faith in Jesus plus works, meaning faith plus works equals salvation. Faith plus works of the law, which is usually translated to mean or interpreted to mean um, obedience to the Torah, things such as the food laws, the the, uh, the Sabbaths, the festivals, uh, the, and many of the other visible uh, Torah-obedient actions and works that, that most of us are familiar with. And so um, in that uh, in that interpretation of the book, then most Christians understand Paul's message to be a stark warning and contrast against the view, view of the Judaizers. And Paul would come along and very sharply disagree with the idea that we need faith plus works to save us. Paul would simply say that it is by faith alone, is by by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. I think that's what most Christians are used to hearing. And um, the works of the law not only will not save, cannot come alongside the faith of Christ, faith in Christ. Not only can they, can they not come along and, and add to salvation, but the works of law are also rendered ineffectual once a person has become a Christian. Meaning, not only do we not come to faith uh, by uh, works, by good works, or by obedience to the law or anything like that, but we also do not need to continue in such obedience because the life that was started by faith is also continued by faith. And we see some semblance of that in Paul's challenge in the book of the very beginning of this chapter where he says, uh, "Have you be, having begun by the Spirit, are you so foolish to, that you're going to be perfected by the flesh? And most commentators take that to mean that are you going to, you know, you, be, you began in, in good measure, you, you started the race the right way by faith and by the giving of the Spirit, and yet now you're going to try and perfect this race. You're going to try and continue in this race or, or run this race under your own, you know, the power of the flesh. That is the, to say by keeping the commandments, you know, keeping Sabbath and kosher and all these other works of the law. So that's the traditional Christian view of the book of Galatians. And of course, uh, the, the, the different view, the different perspective, the different take on the book from the tradition, from the, uh, now recognized, um, messianic camp meaning these Jews and Gentiles who are professing faith in Jesus, but have also expressed an interest in returning to the commandments of Moses, the Torah of Moshe. This would include Jews and Gentiles who typically attend Messianic congregations. Um, you can find them wearing tassels on their garments, seat seats attached to their belt loops, or wearing full-blown um, uh, uh, talit katan or talit uh, gadol, you know, these uh, prayer shawls. And most of these people, Jews and Gentiles alike, uh, will, for the men, they'll wear kippah on their head, you know, yarmulke. Um, they won't make a distinction between Jew and Gentile, they'll both wear them. Uh, these people can be found gathering on the Sabbath day. These people can be found keeping the festivals, you know, Passover, Yom Kippur, uh, feast, uh, tabernacles, things like that. Pentecost. These people can also be found uh, trying to uh, return to some semblance of biblical kosher, meaning they abstain from pork, they abstain from shrimp, uh, clam, lobster, uh, you know, ham, the traditional pepperoni pizzas. Uh, these people try to um, try to, uh, in a word, they try to return to the law of Moses as best as they can. I don't 
see any of them trying to keep animal sacrifices. That's a good thing. There's no temple around to do that. I don't see them trying to uh, reenact many of the laws of ritual purity. Uh, you know, the laws that pertain to uh, maybe uh, the menstruating woman or laws of like, you know, uh, impurity, uncleanness that can be passed from person to person if a, if a menstruating woman sits on a chair. Uh, I don't see many of these people uh, trying to reenact any of the uh, death penalty laws. You know, you have the rebellious son, we should take him out and stone him, things like that. So, um, but for the most part, it looks like these, these folks, these Jews and Gentiles are trying to, uh, f- obey God as best they understand it. And when they get to the book of Galatians and the passages that the traditional Christians, uh, say that prove that the law has been superseded by the law of Christ or has been relaxed in the, in the, at the death of Jesus, or it's been, it, it, it found its bookends, uh, until, uh, Jesus came, until the faith came. You know, when we talk about Galatians 3.19, why then the law was added until got these bookends of the law added at the be- being the beginning and until being the 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 uh the ending of the law but the the messianic Jews and Gentiles the Torah communities the Torah pursuant believers they don't see that that way they see things a little differently of course i actually belong to this camp you you couldn't tell by the way i was describing it because i was talking about them in you know kind of a strange distance way these people those people but oddly enough i actually belong to that group so what we're going to do tonight is we're going to finalize the last three verses in my own commentary, and we're going to put a cap on, um, put a bow on Galatians chapter three in my commentary. As you realize, I didn't cover every verse, uh, but let's go back now and turn to uh, the one that we're going to start with, and then I, I'm going to leave room to talk maybe for fifteen or twenty minutes or so about this other idea of Torah observance and this this. Um, um, discussion that uh, uh, my uh, fellow Bible uh, Torah student uh, and I had last week after the uh, after chat session. Okay, all right. Looking at my commentary near the bottom of page one thirty six, we left off last week with talking about this um, this schoolmaster, this this tutor that many people are used to reading about in their in their Bibles, verse twenty four, uh, that the Torah was a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, and the final. Um, my analysis there, this this is my little segue, my analysis of that verse about the, the Torah being the schoolmaster to lead us to Christ is that, that uh, in my uh, commentary I said it this way, um, uh, Paul would not agree to dismissing the Torah so easily once, once one affirms personal faith in Yeshua, meaning once the Torah brings us to Christ, uh, your average Christian commentary is going to tell you that now that we're now that um, the Torah brings us to Christ, we don't need the Torah anymore. And that's what we're going to see in verse 25 here in a moment. But um, <clears throat> the way I said it in my uh, commentaries, I said, Like a master tool in the hands of the master craftsman, the Torah employs many functions. And leading the boy to the schoolmaster is only one of them. Okay. And um, now when we turn to verse 25, we start to read this... Uh, Let's see. All right. In verse 25, we start to read a little bit more about this particular guardian, this, this, this tutor, as it will, as you will. And let me read the verse and read my commentary, and then we'll see if we can explain it in uh, perhaps maybe a little different light than you're used to hearing. Uh, verse 25 reads again, But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. And again, we know that the guardian in this verse, the, the, the pedagogos, is in fact the Torah. There's no doubt about that. We we cannot get away from that fact. So we know that Paul is stating quite plainly that 
there is something about this guardian that drops off once we come to faith. In other words, now that faith has come. And we can look at that verse one of two ways. Here's what I say in my commentary. This verse, I believe, must be understood within the argument that Shaul is making, as well as within the overall context of the Bible itself. Part of that context is this. Faith in Yeshua does not nullify the Torah of Hashem. And this is a truth that's actually stated explicitly by Paul in Romans 3.31. So let me just pull that up real quick. I think this time, instead of just uh, reading the whole thing and then uh, going back afterwards, I'm going to stop as I read. Seems to be a little easier for me that way. Romans 3, if you're looking at my screen, I'm pulling up Romans 3, and we're going to go down to the very end of the chapter. Uh, the last, really, the last three verses in Romans 3, Paul says, starting in verse 29, to get the, the just the very immediate context. Actually, starting verse 27 would be give us a good context when it comes to works. Paul says, then what becomes of, of our boasting is it is excluded. Speaking of Jew and Gentile, what becomes of our, the, our Jew and Gentile boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law would it be excluded? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. So the law of faith that Paul speaks about in Romans 3.27 excludes boasting of Jews and Gentiles. What would they boast about? Well, quite a few things. They would boast about their position in God. They would boast about their position in the covenants. They would boast about their ethnic identity. But probably what most Christians are used to hearing them boast about is their works, their obedience to the law. So that's why Paul says, by a law of works? No. So a law of faith excludes boasting. But interestingly, if we follow that same logic, the law of works includes boasting. Agreed? Okay. Verse 28, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Of course, Romans 3.28 is almost a, a near word-for-word -word, uh, summary of uh, Galatians 2. 15 and 16, particularly verse 16. Remember, we read months ago in Galatians where Paul basically says, uh, "For it's not by works of law that a man is justified, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we believe in Jesus Christ that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. For by works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. That's kind of my paraphrase of um, Galatians 3.16. And here we have Paul saying again in Romans, Romans 3.28, we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So, basically the same thing. And we know also in verse 28 here of Romans that justification is, it may include some type of temporal justification, you know, being declared righteous because of the things that we do, but primarily justification is spoken of here in, in legal forensic terms, meaning this is the eternal justification, salvific justification. It is saving justification that we're talking about here. We hold that one is basically saved by faith apart from works of the law. That's what we know Paul's saying. Verse 29, or is God the God of Jews only? Interestingly, the, the challenge of being the God of Jews only flies in the face of what the traditional Jewish people of Paul's day ostensibly, or I'm sorry, what they thought that God was basically teaching them, or that the Torah was teaching them, is that basically God was the God of the Jews only. Meaning, otherwise, why did he only elect the Jews? I.e., why did he only elect Israel? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also, also, though? Paul challenges us. Yes, he's the God of Gentiles, meaning he can, he can and does justify Jews as well as Gentiles by the same method. And he says so in the next verse, since God is one, meaning the one God of Jews and Gentiles, who will justify the circumcised, that's the Jews, by faith, and the uncircumcised, that's the Gentiles, through faith. So we got Jew and Gentile both 
being recognized by God as by faith being justified. And then he has this cryptic verse 31 that we read about that ties it into uh, his question about what's the purpose of the law and then does this schoolmaster, which is the law, which brings us to the faith in Christ, does this schoolmaster drop off after we come to faith in the law? Look what Paul says in Romans 3.31. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? He answers his own questions. By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. And if I look at the Greek, I'm, I think... Uh, yeah, he uses the same strong Greek adversive um, that he used in uh, his law contrary to faith when he says, uh, may it never be, is you know, when he says, may it never be, by no means, me genoito. Well, he says the same thing here, in, uh, right here, me genoito. Do we overthrow the law by this faith? By no means, me genoito, which is, which is as strong as never may it be in the Greek, right? So, um, Paul says very clearly in Romans 3.31 that the law... And faith are not contrary here. The, the, the law is not thrown away or overthrown. It's not done away with. It's not relaxed. It's not superseded by faith. So then we can go back to Galatians 3.25 and say, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. We must then understand the verse a little differently to then to be simply explaining that now that faith has come, we no longer have to concern ourselves with this law. That's why I said it needs to be understood in the, in, the, in the larger context of what Paul says elsewhere. What then is the verse trying to teach us? We're near to the top of page 137. Simply that once in an unregenerate man, which is the boy in the example given above, right? Once the unregenerate man reaches the desired goal, which is what? The teacher of righteousness. That's the goal. Then once this boy reaches the goal, he no longer needs to be led by a, a pedagogos. Right, the the, the I'm sorry, the the the, the gogos, uh, the is the the thing that the 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 person, as it were, that brings the boy to the teacher's righteousness. And once this this boy tutor, this this uh, guide, brings him to the teacher of righteousness, he's reached his destination. He's reached the goal. So he no longer needs to be led by the, the, the Pythagogos. He's reached his destination. The Pythagogos, having served its intended function, now then takes on a new role for the boy, which is one of instructing the lad in matters of lifelong sanctification and servitude to the teacher of righteousness. Now you're going to ask me, immediately you're going to challenge me. Where did you get that, Ariel? It didn't say that in the verse. It didn't say anything about the Pythagogos um, changing his hats as from one to guide to now to one of teacher. But hang on, stay with me. We're going to see it in a different Pauline passage. But I I, I believe firmly that that's what the, the Torah does. Now, maybe the, the, the Pythagogos may not do that, right? But the, um, the, the, the Torah itself does. So, um, alternately, the verse may be another way for Paul to be teaching his Talmudim, his, his disciples, that once we have arrived at faith in Yeshua, that we're no longer under a pejorative position in this usage. Under, right, we're no longer under the schoolmaster. When he says we're no longer under the law, which is another term for the law of condemnation, i.e., uh, since the verse says um, plainly, uh, but now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. This word under in the Greek, uh, it's not the traditional word uh, for under as in under the law, but we could think of it the same way. Now that we're, in fact, let me go look at the Greek just for a split second. 
Now the faith is coming no longer under a guardian. Uh, yes, I'm sorry, it is. It is hupaw. Hupaw right here. Hupaw is the word when we get to uh, under law a little later on down, where it says um, uh, we're, no, we're not under the law, we're under grace. Um, I'm trying to see, if is that verse here in Galatians? Well, I know it's in Romans. If you're, uh, if you're under grace, you're no longer under the law. All right, I don't see it in this verse. But um, nevertheless, what I'm trying to point out is that uh, we could take this verse a few different ways, and they don't all, they, none of them really conflict with one another. They don't contradict each other. Um, so we could have Paul basically teaching us that the law is our schoolmaster, our tutor, our guide. I don't really like the word tutor there because I don't think that the law is a tutor in this fashion. But um, it's it's really, ba basically it's our bodyguard. The, the, the Pythagogos literally means the um, boy, boy leader. Uh, Gogos, the boy protector. Something like that. Um, so uh, the boy, the boy tutor takes us to the teacher of righteousness. The boy, I keep saying tutor there because that's what I'm used to reading in in, in Christian commentaries. The boy leader uh, takes us to the teacher of righteousness, and once it, he leads us there, he's played his role, his guardian role of bringing us to the teacher. But we could also see that when he says we're no longer under a tutor, if we think of the uh, law as this harsh disciplinarian, this taskmaster, as it were, that kind of um, scolded us whenever we stepped out of line, if you want to think of it that way. I know many Christian commentaries describe the, the, the pedagogos that way. Once we come to Yeshua, this harsh condemnation that the law held over our heads because we were, we were unregenerate sinners, um, because we were unrepentant sinners, because we were still dead in Christ and dead in our trespasses and sin, once we have arrived at the goal, which is the Messiah, the teacher of righteousness, we are released from that aspect of condemnation that the Torah held over our head. You can read about that in Romans chapters 5, 6, and 7, and 8. Okay, so that's another way to understand the verse. We're no longer under this schoolmaster, which in my commentary I describe as shorthand, you know, when Paul says we're no longer under the law. It's kind of shorthand for uh, under the condemnation of the function of law that is reserved for unregenerate sinners. So this is also true theologically. When we're brought to the teacher of righteousness, once we arrive at the goal, we're no longer under that aspect of the law. So the point is there's two roles of the Torah that I'm describing. One is the purpose of guiding us along and taking us to the teacher of righteousness. And um, the other, give me a moment, let me see the guardian... The, the pedagogos, um, the pedagogos, I'm sorry, I keep mispronouncing it as pedagogos, pedagogos. Uh, let's see, which uh, Strong's G71 is, this word means to bring, or to bring forth, yeah, the boy bringer, uh, the boy leader, that's the word I was looking for earlier. Okay, so it's the thing that brings the boy, the boy bringer, the tutor that some people call, but I think tutor is probably not the best word in this particular example. Okay, so that's one way to look at the verse. That's two ways to look at the verse. And I think that's a good way to look at the verse, but we have to recall that the Torah is a little bit more complex than just the boy guide, the boy you know, leader. The Torah is intimately more complex than that. Okay, let's keep going. Um, in verse 28 and 29, Paul says, There's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's no male and female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. And the reason I brought this verse into my commentary, even though it doesn't mention anything about the law, is because I'm, I'm familiar with a, a great number of commentaries that um, 
make a point that because Paul says there's neither Jew nor Greek, then why should we Torah observant or Torah pursuant believers seek to lead what would seek what would seem to be a Jewish lifestyle? There's no Jew nor Greek. Why do we have to start keep looking like Jews? In other words, without saying it saying it uh, specifically that Jesus did away with um, Jewish identity, what traditional Christian exegetes do say is that Jesus did away with the law. Jesus did away with uh, any um, any obligation to the keep to keep the law. But what they failed to understand is that most Jewish people and a good number of Messianic Gentiles as well recognize that a, a large portion of what we recognize as the Torah of Moshe actually describes and outlines what Jewish people today would describe as Jewish lifestyle, meaning their very culture is shaped by the commandments of God that we read about in the law of Moses. And so to tell a believer, whether he's Jewish or Gentile, doesn't matter, but to tell a believer that the law is done away with is tantamount to telling them that they no longer have to walk in a manner that would resemble Jewishness. You guys understand what I'm saying? Even though I don't believe that the purpose of the Torah was to give us Jewish identity, I firmly disagree with that uh, supposed function of the Torah, that the Torah describes Jewish lifestyle and that it that it limits and, and um, carefully outlines what should be known to others as Jewish life. But <clears throat> the point I'm trying to make is that... Um, the Jewish people have modeled their, their culture and their life after the Torah of Moshe for so many years that Jewish lifestyle and Torah lifestyle are coterminous now. They, they intersect with one another. They reach the same uh, conclusions. They, they follow after the same footsteps so that to walk as a Jew is to walk after the Torah of Moshe, and to walk after the Torah of Moshe is to walk like the Jews have historically walked. You guys understand what I'm saying? So for this verse to say that there's neither Jew nor Greek... There's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female. For for the Christian church to tell the Jewish people, just focus on coming to Messiah, focus on accepting Jesus. And once you accept Jesus, you're no longer under the law, you're no longer under the schoolmaster, you no longer have to concern yourself with keeping kosher and Sabbath and wearing seat seat and all those things. What the Jewish people, at least the observant ones, hear the Christian saying is that, once you come to faith in Jesus, you no longer have to live like a Jew. There's neither Jew nor Greek. Just need to live like fill in the blank. And what's the fill in the blank? Well, even though the Christians wouldn't say live like a Greek, because they cannot, the logic wouldn't allow them to do it because the verse says there's neither Jew nor Greek. What the Christians basically say is there's neither Jew nor Greek. Now we just have Christian. There's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither no male or female, for you're all one. What's the all one? You're all Christ. You're all Christians. You're all Christians in Christ Jesus. You're all believers. So we don't have to focus on looking like Jews or Greeks. We don't have to focus on whether we're slave or free. We don't have to focus on whether we're male or female, the Christian church would tell us. We simply need to focus on being believers. But what, what the Christian church doesn't understand is that when they say you just need to focus on being believers— they're actually saying that you don't need to concern yourself with living your life like the Jews have been living for the last 3,500 years. And that is really an, an, an insult to Jewish people 
And it's also unnecessary, right? Paul continued to live like a Jew even after he came to faith in Jesus. And of course, Jesus himself was a Jew and is a Jew. He lived like a Jew, of course. He would live like a Jew because he is a Jew. So there's nothing in the Torah that tells Jews to stop living as Jews. On the contrary, Paul's going to go on to tell us later on in Corinthians um, that if you were called when you're Jewish, then don't seek to hide your Jewishness. It is, that is to say, don't undo your circumcision, this concept known as epispasm. And if you're a Gentile, don't seek to uh, change your ethnicity into one of Jewishness, right? Don't try to become a Jew. But So this is really a challenge to both Jews and Gentiles. What lifestyle should we lead once we come to faith in Christ? Well, I believe quite simply, we do lead a lifestyle that is modeled after Messiah. But that means following after God's commandments. And if the commandments are described by the world as Jewish, well, then that's the, that issue, that's the world's problem. That's their issue. I think the Torah isn't given to just to this is just my opinion, but it's shared by other well-meaning messianic uh, teachers. I think that the Torah was not given to make us look like Jews. The Torah was make given to make us look like covenant members, and Jew and Gentile alike look like covenant members when we walk into the commandments of God, and that's the proper way I believe to interpret. Uh, our lifestyle that we, the lifestyle that we lead after we come to Messiah. We are designed to look like righteous covenant members. And if the world describes that as Jewish, well then let them do so. I don't care. That's their problem, not mine. So let's read my commentary. In verse 26 of this chapter, Paul states that the Galatians are all the children of God. And this is so important for us as believers, Jew and Gentile, that we understand that Paul's describing our, our status. Because the influencers, the Judaizers, would have the Galatians believe that they had not arrived at that status until they take on Jewish identity and then take on uh, Torah observance. They hadn't arrived until he reached that conclusion. But Paul says, no, if you are in Christ, you have arrived. You have reached the goal. In that sense, you have arrived, right? Your, your, your new life in Messiah has just begun, obviously, and it is going to be a hard journey, but... Uh, fear not, because Yeshua said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And it's the power of the Spirit that we're going to be living now. What does Paul say? I now live, uh, uh, the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. So it's not that we're going to be living this new life under our own power anyway. We're going to be living it under the power of the Holy Spirit within us. But it's a new life that has begun. The old life, the old man's dead, the new man has, has been brought to life. And of course, that's all uh, Christian 101. So Paul says that this this new status that the Galatians have reached uh, as children of God is a preview of his continuing argument uh, for con- genuine adoption and covenant membership by those placing their unreserved trusting faithfulness in the goal of the Torah, namely Yeshua the Messiah. We're going to read about this ongoing idea of adoption as sons in the next chapter, chapter 4, where Paul continues to assure the Galatian readers that they need not take on some additional step, uh, such as Jewish identity or Torah observance, in order to be counted as righteous by God. They have already reached the conclusion. They have already reached the teacher of righteousness. They have already been brought to the goal, to use that language that we find in the book of Hebrews. As I keep reading my commentary, I say it this way. In our present verse, right here in 28 and 29, in our present verses, he uses universal language equal to the inclusion of every known ethnic, social, and gender-specific set common to the ancient Near East. We've got these, these doublets, we call it. We've got the Jew and Greek. 
We got the slave and free. We got the male and female, and and these are the the doublets as I describe them. The the, the dualistic breakdown of the the um, view from a Jewish perspective of all of uh, human society, at least in the first century in the uh, in the Second Temple uh, time period. And these doublets were ways of seeing both sides of society: those that were in and those that were out; those that were privileged and those that were not privileged, those that were um, uh, righteous and those that were not righteous, Jew and Greek, slave and free, male and female. So obviously, as in, in case you're not aware, from the Jewish self-understanding of Paul's day, to be a Jewish free male was all the advantageous social uh, identities that one could hope for, to be a Jewish free male. Conversely, to be a Greek slave female was the lowest end of the spectrum, was the other side of the fulcrum, was the side you didn't want to be in. In fact, the, 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 um, interestingly enough, the modern uh, Jewish prayer book that you can pick up today, the Sidur, uh, has this paragraph where uh, the Jewish person thanks God uh, during the Shacharit service, during the morning service, thanks God for a great number of things. And one of the things that he thanks them is that he was not born a male, that he was not born a Gentile, that he was not born a male, and that he was not born... I'm sorry, he was. he's thankful to God that he was not born a, a, a Gentile, that he was not born a slave, and that he was not born a female. And so this is the, the, the boastful, as it were, position of the traditional Jewish free male of Paul's day, which has carried on down to today. Uh, and we can see this in the preoccupation with with male-centric uh, Jewish worship, where it's it's only a, a, a minion of ten Jews, pre uh, preferably men, that allow for a, a Jewish prayer service to uh, commence. And it is predominantly the, the males in the Jewish communities that are leading and driving the the the, the social um, leadership, uh, the study of Torah, the, the the role of the women is kind of downplayed. It's it's put kind of on back burner status. It's 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 kind of uh, I don't want to say uh, just completely shoved off to the side, but there is this misogyny, as it were, that that's present in much of Judaism today. It's it's you know much to their shame. Uh, even though they wouldn't admit it, but it's there. And we see that here in this verse. There's neither male nor female, uh, Jew nor Greek, uh, slave nor free. As I keep reading my commentary, the doublets were a common way of identifying the dualistic breakdown of all men in the eyes of a Jewish person. And we could compare Romans 116, 2, 9 through 11, Romans 3:29 that I just read about. Is, there, is, is God the God of the Jews only? Things like that. 1 Corinthians 7, 19. So we see that this is just the way that they thought. Paul, of course, would understand that in Messiah, all have been made equal, meaning, the, the, what do we say, that when it comes to redemption, when it comes to God being uh, able to bring a person to knowledge of Christ, to, uh, to being uh, saved, as it were, um, that there, what do we say, that the ground is level at the foot of the cross, Meaning, there's no higher or lower ground. There's no Jew that rides the high ground and Greek that's, that sits on the low ground. There's no male that sits on the high ground with female on the low ground. There's no free man that sits on the high ground with a slave sitting beneath him on the low ground. It's not that way. The, the ground is level. Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female, we're all equally recognized as sinners. And therefore, we all have an equal opportunity to approach 
God through the Son and be counted as righteous on those terms. So the term Greek, the actual Greek word is uh, Helen or Helene, as we would say it, uh, from from which we get our our, uh, familiar word Hellenism. This Greek word actually refers to a non-Jew. So it's to be understood as synonymous with Gentile. So when he says there's neither Jew nor Greek, he means there's neither Jew nor Gentile. And that's basically the, the simplistic way that the Jews of Paul's day sliced and diced the world around them. Everyone was either a Jew or not a Jew. And everyone was either a covenant member or not a covenant member. And obviously, from their limited perspective, all Jews were covenant members to to the extent that all Jews maintained their position within the covenant by maintaining their fidelity to God as expressed in commandments, uh, commandment keeping. So, uh, Greek, the word Greek actually means, well, it literally means Greek, but it refers to Gentiles. His point is obvious. His point is obvious. The good news is not subject to ethnocentric Jewish exclusivism, right? The gospel is not for Jews only. What do we read about there in Romans uh, 3 again? God is not the God of Jews only, Romans 3.29. He's the God of Jews and Gentiles. That's his point. He's the God of slave and free. He's the God of male and female. So it's not ethnocentric Jewish exclusive and much to the consternation of the Judaisms of his day. Remember, that is one of the primary uh, hermeneutical keys, I believe, to understanding the, not only Paul's first century Judaisms, but also to understanding the thrust of Paul's arguments in the book of Galatians itself. And the primary key is this. The Judaisms of Paul's day, as best as we can understand from the extant rabbinic literature that we have today, as well as, as additional research into, say, the Dead Sea Scrolls and, and research uh, following from that, as best as we can understand, the Judaisms of Paul's day held to this common belief that all Israel shared a place in the world to come that we read about in Mishnah Sanhedrin 10.1. And the commentary on that verse is is points to the Isaiah 60 verse 12 passage, I believe, where it says, uh, all Israel shares a place in the world to come, uh, meaning uh, all your people are righteous, all thy people are righteous is how it reads in uh, in uh, the Mishnah Sanhedrin 10.1. All all your all thy people are righteous. I'm sorry, all Israel shares a place in the world to come is how the rabbinic literature reads, which is taken from the Isaiah passage that says, All your people shall be righteous, or all your people are righteous. Since Paul is speaking I'm sorry, since uh the, the verse is speaking to Israel, then the, the leaders of, of Paul's day understood this verse to be speaking to Jewish Israel. So it's this exclusive Jewish position that centered on the ethnicity, the ethnicity of Jews as Jews, as Jewish Israel, that caused the Judaisms of his day to believe that all Jews and only Jews shared a place in the world to come, i.e. all Jews and only Jews were saved. Rather, so we know that that's not the case. We know that Paul disagrees with that position. He, know, he understands now that in Messiah that, Jew, that God can and does save Gentiles as well as Jews. Recall the, uh, the incident in Acts chapter 10 with Peter and Cornelius, and how the Holy Spirit was poured out to these Gentiles, much to the surprise of the, Gen- the Jews that were in the room that day. So, the old Christian hymnal says it all. Whosoever will may come. Whosoever includes Jew, Gentile, male, free, uh, male, female, slave, and free, right? All may come to Messiah. In its present syntax, the verse is somewhat formulaic. Faith in Messiah equals Abraham's seed equals heirs according to the promise found in the very Torah of Moses. That's kind of the way we see it, because there's this kind of this doubling of, for you are all one in Christ Jesus, and if you are in Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, according to promise. He's kind of building his case 
uh, kind of snowballing the theology of the verse. This, this when I say formulaic, it's almost like a, a syllogism where we have um, premise and premise, premise built upon premise, arriving at a conclusion similar similar to that idea. That's what I mean by formulaic. Compare this to the influencers' formula, right? How do the influencers describe their logic? Ethnic status equals Abraham's seed, which equals heirs according to the flesh. And so Paul's going to challenge that idea. And he's going to continue to challenge this as we keep reading through the book of Galatians. So I want you not to lose sight of this idea that Paul is not, Paul is not speaking of, dis, speaking disparaging words of the Torah so much as he's really trying to uproot this common first century idea that Jews and all, Jews and only Jews were, uh, the recipients of God's promises. Jews and only Jews were eligible to receive uh, covenant salvation as described by Abraham, okay? All right, so <clears throat> I think we have described uh, these three verses well enough. Let's now, for the next, um, just for the next 10 minutes or so, I, I'll try not to make this really long. Uh, let me uh, turn to a discussion that I had with a um, uh, another one of my um, readers and listeners. Give me a moment. <clears throat> a discussion that I had with another one of my uh, listeners. In fact, he's he should be in the class with me right now, if, if I'm un, if I'm correct. His microphone's muted, so he, you can't hear him talking. But uh, he and I had this very important discussion last week about a term that I use quite frequently in my commentaries. And he asked me about that, and he told me his understanding of the, of my term. And I've come now to understand that. Perhaps the term that I'm using is a bit misleading, and he has helped me to go back and perhaps uh, rethink the way I want to describe this term to make make sure it's not uh, misleading terminology. And I appreciate his his valuable insight to the uh, uh, discussion, and I also want him to understand that I fully affirm his position, uh, but I also want him to not misunderstand my position. And the term I'm referring to is behavioral righteousness. Behavioral righteousness. So let's go back over to um, Deuteronomy for a split second. Uh, give me a moment. Deuteronomy 6.25. It's not uh, uncommon for me to talk about two types of righteousness in the Bible. And in this very limited definition of two types of righteousness, I have been fond of describing them as behavioral righteousness and forensic righteousness, or behavioral and positional. Now, this word behavioral, let me tell you, just give you the shortest definition of, of what I mean by behavioral. And then perhaps maybe you and I can, the, re, the readers, those listening to my commentaries, to include my good friend who's listening right now, perhaps maybe you can help me to create better terminology so that people don't misunderstand what I'm trying to say. I believe that, that there are two types, just like the Jews of Paul's day, I believe that they're essentially two ways you could look at humanity. You could see that humanity is divided into saved and unsaved. That's, in my understanding, the basic two uh, uh, categories of humans in the world today and throughout human history. You've either been a saved person or an unsaved person. If you are an unsaved person, this means that you basically have uh, a choice because you are created in the image of God as a free will agent and as a, a moral creature, you have the ability to do good. Behavioral righteousness, in my understanding, is the the ability, the choice, and the doing of good deeds in your life. 
In other words, there are millions, there are uncountless good things that a man can do outside of faith in God, outside of faith in Christ. You know, helping the old lady across the street, uh, preventing someone, preventing a, a murder or robbery or, or, or giving up your seat to a pregnant woman, you know, on the train or the subway. Um, you know, there, there, even, even, um, um, just raising your children as, as good parents, even without being religious, even without professing any faith in God or any other religion. The fact that man has been created with the ability to choose to do ethical and moral good works is something that I believe that God created man to do. I believe that man was created <clears throat> to superintend the earth. And even though man fell from that position and usurped it and gave it over to the adversary in, 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 a, in a sense, and now we have the devil as the prince of the power of the air and the devil is the, the god of this world who blinds the eyes of all men until God opens their eyes and allows them to, to come out of that darkness and find Messiah. But until then, man, yes, he gropes about in darkness, but behavioral righteousness is a description of, uh, and maybe it's the word righteousness that's throwing uh, people off, but behavioral right deeds, if I want to use that word instead, behavioral good deeds, behavioral goodness is something that man not only has the ability to do, but history has shown and demonstrated that man does do these things. And I'm going to show you a few different passages out of the Bible where I see that this is the case, where God also recognizes that man can and does do good things, even though this man is recognized in the passages as an unsaved man. <clears throat> So there are two types of righteousness. One is this behavioral righteousness, or two types of deeds, if you want to call it that. There's uh, this righteousness, or the, the things that men do. And I call it righteousness because it's recognizably by God as right living. That's what I mean by righteousness. Right living and right being, right doing, or whatever you want to call it. Uh, so man can do good even though he doesn't recognize God. Although ultimately his goodness, his goodness is not going to be recognized by God as salvific. I do recognize that. There's no amount of good that a man can do that will bring him to a saving position in God's court. He cannot work his way into salvation. He cannot work his way towards forensic righteousness. But at the very least, uh, I think God recognizes good deeds and in fact rewards those good deeds. We're going to see that as well. So that's what I call behavior righteousness. Contrast this or compare this with <clears throat> forensic righteousness or positional righteousness, which is the type of righteousness that God uh, reckons to a person's account once they believe in faith in Christ. In other words, salvation. In other words, there are works that a man does uh, once he comes to faith in Christ, and these are works that are empowered by the Holy Spirit. These are actions that are done in under the power of the Holy Spirit, and God not only recognizes those actions and works, God has actually prepared those actions in advance for the righteous person to do. We read about that in Romans, uh, I think it's 8, 9, and 10. For by grace are you saved through faith, not, not of works, as, lest any man, not of works, lest any man should boast. I'm really butchering the verse here, but we are as workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works. So there are good works that God has foreordained that we should walk in, the, the verse goes on to talk about. God has foreordained certain works, certain good works, certain forensic righteousness, right works, right actions, that we do walk in, but these actions are not possible until we graduate and matriculate to faith in Christ. So the righteousness that God recognizes is a righteous, it's, it's, it's a righteous, uh, identification that 
uh, is inclusive of right works. In other words, it's faith that includes works. It's the whole James passage all over again. Faith without works is dead. Why is faith without works dead? Because works is the vindication of true faith. Therefore, true faith must produce true fruit. And of course, the fruit is the fruit that is uh, produced by the Spirit within us, the fruit of the Spirit, the love, the joy, the peace, the long-suffering, the goodness, the gentleness, the meekness. Those fruits, that's, that fruit of the Spirit that's described elsewhere in the Bible is also indicative of genuine faith. And it's, it's the fruit of the Spirit which leads, let, that gives way to the good works that we are commanded to do, the loving of our neighbor. So basically, one could describe the two types of righteousness as this vertical and horizontal relationship that we read about all over the Bible. For instance, the ten words would be a good place to to uh, see this. The vertical relationship that uh, that we see described uh, between us and God, you know, the the, the vertical line that's drawn uh, from earth to heaven, is the first four verses of the ten words that we read about love, loving God, uh, no, no, making no idols, um, no other gods before God. Uh, uh, you know, don't bow down to anyone. Don't make any graven images. Um, remember the Sabbath day. Those are all descriptions of our vertical relationship with God. But then we turn to the next six words. You know, of the Ten Commandments. The others, the final six, describe our horizontal relationship, the the relationship that we have with with our fellow man. So it's it's basically the way that Yeshua described it when the, he was uh, challenged with. What is the greatest commandment in the Bible? And and even though Moshe doesn't delineate it this way, there would already been this sort of Jewish pecking order to the commandments, and Yeshua doesn't seem to disagree with it. What does he say? He says, the first is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, right? Deuteronomy 6, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8. In other words, what we describe as the Shema, love the Lord your God. That's the first and greatest commandment. But that's that's the vertical relationship. We would all recognize that. And then the horizontal relationship, which nicely forms a picture of a cross, in case you hadn't caught that, the vertical beam and the horizontal beam come together to form this cross. The, the horizontal cross beam is the, you know, love your neighbor as yourself, kamoka. So we got uh, love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and then we got love your neighbor as yourself. That's the horizontal and the vertical and the horizontal. That is essentially what where Yeshua said, "On these hang all the law and the prophets." Right? These two capture the essence of 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 all of what man is designed and created to do: love God and love your neighbor. Well, unfortunately, without truly loving God, we cannot truly love our neighbor. So they work together. It is only by accepting God's Messiah, Yeshua, that one can truly love his neighbor the way that God designed him to. But until but before that happens, there are plenty of good people who actually demonstrate a love for their fellow man. So let's see this. Deuteronomy 6.25, Moshe says it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all the commandments. What kind of righteousness is Moshe describing here? This is why I use the word behavioral righteousness. The righteousness that Moshe describes here is essentially right living within the boundaries of what God considers righteousness, or what God considers the right thing to do. And the way I know this is true, because earlier, if we go back up to uh, verse 18, um, Moshe says specifically, right, I'm sorry, starting in verse 17 and 18, notice the, the words that Moshe uses. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes which he has commanded you. 
right? This is the righteousness that Moshe just said would be ours in verse 25 of this same chapter. In verse 17, he says, you are to diligently keep them. And then in verse 18, he says, and you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord. What does he mean, do what is right and good? The asit hay, the, the, asita ha yashar hatov, doing what is righteous and good, uh, be'ene adonai, doing what is right and good in the sight of the Lord. Notice that it is a doing. The asa is the Hebrew word, the root word for doing, the asita. And what is right is the yashar part, and what is good is the tov part. So there is a doing. There's a doing. So it's a right doing. It's doing what is right. That's what I describe as forensic, I'm sorry, behavioral righteousness, meaning just basically right behavior. And here's the point. The reward for doing what is right, as described in these verses, is that it may go well with you and that you may go in and take possession of the land. So basically, Moshe puts this reward in front of righteous living. And we cannot assume that the Jewish people at this point in time were saved. Of course, the text doesn't say that they were unsaved either. I understand that point. It's somewhat an argument from silence. But it's better to understand that uh, for, for most, for the most part, by and large, the people that Moshe is writing to, we, we cannot even make the suggestion that all of them were saved. We know that that is simply not the fact. Therefore, the instructions that are given to all Israel at this point in time must be applicable both to saved and unsaved Jews. Surely there were people in the group that were saved. Surely there were people in the group that were unsaved. But the point I'm trying to make is that the reward that was in front of them as a group is the same reward. The reward for going into land, the, the reward for keeping the commandments was life in the land. And this reward was for the saved as well as the unsaved. You get my point. All right. We could also, of course, recall that in way back in the book of Genesis chapter 4, where God talks about uh, Cain and Abel bringing their sacrifices, we of course know that Abel's sacrifice was accepted before God, but Cain's wasn't. And what does the, the passage describe Cain as doing? His countenance was down, his, his, his countenance had fallen, and God has this dialogue with him. Why, is your, why, why are you downtrodden, Cain? Why is your countenance fallen? Don't you know that sin lies at the door? It crouches at the door. But you can do good. You can ma have mastery over it. And I understand this verse in two ways. The rabbis talk about how that this is a description of God saying to Cain as a man. Basically, you can choose to do sin or you can choose to do good. You can choose the right thing or you can choose the wrong thing. And as you as a free moral agent with the uh, uh, ethical and moral responsibility to do good, as you do good, God will reward your ethical and moral choices for doing good. But ultimately, it is God's grace that enables a man to do good and eventually find his way to God and to God's Messiah. So we can see that there's a path a path of righteousness. And if we were described, if you could, you could picture a scene in your mind where there's this open field of wickedness, a field of, of lawlessness, but cutting right through this path is this path of righteousness. And all of mankind is, is, is caught up in this field of wickedness, this field of lawlessness. But there's this path of righteousness that is described in the pages of God's word, both the Old and New Testaments. And this path of righteousness, if you stay on this path, will lead you to the teacher of righteousness, 
Who is the teacher of righteousness? We already read about him. His name is Yeshua. We read about him just a moment ago in Galatians chapter 3, verses 24-25. So, the path of righteousness leads one to the teacher of righteousness. So, what is man's duty and responsibility is to actually get on the path and start walking. And it is his duty not only to walk, but to continue to walk. As he continues to walk, the grace of God and the power of God will actually lead this man to the teacher of righteousness. Meaning, at the, the, one of the functions of the law, as a man walks on the path of righteousness, is to lead him to the teacher of righteousness. It's not that he's doing it by his own powers, per se. It's rather that... As he's walking and making right choices, I like to say, I like to believe that he's walking in grace. It's this prevenient grace that the Armenians talk about. But nevertheless, he, he, he won't have his eyes open until he actually meets Messiah at the end of the path. But that does not, that does not and cannot, uh, discount the fact that he is walking along the path and he is not only capable of walking along the path, He's actually expected to do it. So let's keep reading this. Let's actually turn real quick. I think this is probably where I'll park the end of my commentary. Let's turn in my uh, description of these of this pathway. Let's turn actually to the book of... Um, let's turn to the Old Testament book of Ezekiel. And we'll see this in two chapters. Chapter 3 and chapter 33 real quick. I'll try not to belabor this point, but the my premise is this. Here's, my, here's the way I understand the Bible. God expects man to do what is right. And only God describes what is right. Only God can um, only God can define what is right and what is good. But man has the ability and the responsibility to do what is right and what is good. There's a general revelation that has been given to all mankind because man is created in the image of God. And in the in, in being created in the image of God, man has not only the ability but the responsibility to to uh, seek to do what is good. So we have this this moral goodness that is within us that at the same time we have this moral corruption, right? It's not like we are saved from from the word go. Don't don't hear me saying that. It's not like we have a good man and a bad man in, inside of us. It's not like we have an angel on one shoulder and a, and a and a devil on the other shoulder. I'm not describing that either. What I'm simply trying to say is that men can go from bad to worse, which means they have the ability to to uh, uh, walk in degrees of goodness and badness. And we know that, that the New Testament describes men going from bad to worse. So look what Ezekiel says in chapter 3. And this is Paul. Uh, I almost said this is Paul. This is God talking to the prophet. Recall, of course, the background is that Ezekiel was writing during the exile of Israel during the, say, 586 time period, 586 B.C. or so, when Israel had been um, uh, captured by Babylon and some of the Jews, some of Israel had been uh, left in the land of Israel uh, to, to kind of uh, till the land and, to, and, and, and keep, keep it running. But some, most had actually been exiled over to Babylon. So the point I'm trying to make is that Ezekiel's describing a, a, a large group of people in Israel's day that essentially had broken faith with God. In fact, the proof that they had broken faith with God is that they had already been exiled, that they had been captured by Babylon, that God had allowed them to be not only uh, uprooted from the land, but to be taken captive to a foreign land. This was part of their punishment. So they were not walking in the covenant, in covenant faithfulness, by and large. And it is to this stubborn people that Ezekiel begins to write. And so this is wartime, right? This is this is war in the sense that the Jewish people or the the people of Israel had basically uh, become to become despondent. Has God given up on us? Has God uh, forsaken us? 
what what is to be our fate? Are we to just be destroyed and the people of Israel will disappear from the face of the earth? Listen what is what Ezekiel says to this people. Let me change this to paragraph for a second so I can uh, uh, read the break. Uh, notice what Ezekiel says, starting in verse uh, 16. This is chapter uh, Ezekiel chapter 3, starting in verse 16. I'm not going to read all of it, just, just a, a, a portion of it. And at the end of seven days, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give the warning from me. If I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way in order to save his life, that wicked person shall die for his iniquity, but his blood I shall require at your hand. But if you warn the wicked and he does not turn from his wickedness or from his wicked way, he shall die for his iniquity, but you shall have delivered your soul. Again, if a righteous, I'm in verse 20 now, again, if a righteous person turn from, turns from his righteousness and commits <clears throat> injustice, and I lay a stumbling block before him, he shall die, because you have not warned him. He shall die for his sin, and his righteous deeds that he has done shall not be remembered, but his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the righteous person not to sin, and he does not sin, he shall surely live because he took warning, and you will have delivered your soul. Okay, let me stop there. This same warning, by the way, is repeated almost verbatim, word for word, in chapter 33 of the same book. And the general sense of this warning is this. God recognizes that there is a righteous person and that there is a wicked person in this passage. And the righteous person is the person who is characteristically the person who does what is righteous. I don't think it's right for us to describe the righteous person here as a saved person. Although, to be sure, that language can be used of some, obviously must be used of some people who are genuinely saved, meaning the saved person in the time period of the Tanakh is the person who has understood that God is the one and only God and that God is the person who can uh, truly save a person, the person whose eyes have been opened by faith and who's actually looking forward by faith to the coming one, the promised one, namely the Messiah. So there are genuinely saved people in the, in the time period of the Tanakh. But for the most part, what Ezekiel is describing is the characteristically right Per, righteous person who does the right thing, does what is right in the in the eyes of God. Right, does what is right in from God's perspective, like we read about in Deuteronomy chapter six a moment ago, around verse seventeen. This person does right by God, meaning he does the moral, ethical, right thing. This doesn't mean he necessarily believes in Messiah, and he may not even have a a, a graduated faith in God. It may just be. Um, uh, an experiential faith, meaning he just knows that God is more powerful than all the other gods around him. Therefore, he places his faith in the most powerful God that there is. But nevertheless, because man is a an ethical, moral creature, he can and does do the right thing, given the grace of God to enable him to do so. Otherwise, left to his own devices, we know that the heart of man is deceitfully wicked and always does wrong. He, he always goes astray. He always, he's going to always swim in that field of unrighteousness that he described earlier. He's not going to even find his way to the path of righteousness, lest it be for the grace of God that shows him and brings him and allows him to step onto that path and begin to walk down that path of righteousness so that he can eventually meet the teacher of righteousness at the, at the end of that pathway. So there are wicked people and there are righteous people. The wicked person is the person that is his life is characteristically untrusting and un uh, uh, what do we say uh, 
he does not keep the commandments of God. He's a lawbreaker. Uh, these types of people shed blood. These types of people um, uh, do not uh, have any regard for the poor. These types of people in, in Ezekiel's day would be those people who are are uh, characteristically idol worshippers. These are the people that that because there were so many of them, they tipped the scales and essentially caused God to send the whole lot of Israel into exile, be kicked out of the land, because characteristically, Israel had had a penchant lust for idolatry. And so even though there were a few that were righteous, meaning there were a few that were actually keeping faith with God, and perhaps even a few that were saved, we know that should be the case as well, overwhelmingly, the people of Israel had forsaken God, and they were following after idolatry, and they were worshiping false gods, and they were uh, committing all manner of gross ethical and moral sins that essentially got them exiled. So the righteous and the wicked are described here. What's my main point? Is that the righteous person can can stop doing righteous deeds and actually start walking in wickedness, and in, and for that, God will punish him. But it is the wicked person who can also conversely turn from doing wicked things. How could he do that? How can he turn from doing wicked things? Well, he can do so, I believe, not only by the grace of God, but but also because of his the fact that he is created in the image of God and he has the power within himself to to make a a ethical moral choice meaning he has the uh, mental power to do so he has a a conscience that weighs on him even man without god has moral conscience right not all not all people that do good things in the world are saved people. In fact, there are a good number of saved people who do bad things. But we know that there are also unsaved people, people of other religions, people of false religions, who actually do ethical and moral things. And it's because God created them with a conscience, uh, meaning God created in God's image. And therefore, by the grace of God, mankind doesn't completely destroy himself. He actually is able to, um, by God's grace, continue to do good things. So it's the wicked people who actually are responsible for turning to away from their wickedness in order to, as Ezekiel describes it, save their life. And, and I believe the salvation here that's being described, the saving of their life, is the salvation from the wartime uh, tragedy that's uh, rampant all around them. The, the destruction of the people and, of, and the destruction of the, of the towns and of the, of the children and the, 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 the uh, murder of innocent life. Uh, the the rampant and blatant disregard for life that the the Babylonian armies uh, demonstrated as they uh, just raised through the, the the cities and towns of Israel uh, in in an, in an effort to basically destroy them and had it not been for God's grace they would have been wiped out we know that Isaiah also talks about the fact that God left a remnant and that remnant was preserved by God's grace we know that from reading uh, Romans chapter nine as well so the point I'm trying to make is that uh, the basically the righteous person is a person who can also stop doing righteous things, and the wicked person also has the ability to stop doing wicked things. And both of these people seem to be able to make these choices, not only because of the grace of God, but because they have been created in the image of God with the with a conscience given by God that allows them to stop doing bad things and turn to start doing good things. All of that to say that when I describe behavioral righteousness or behavioral good works, I think that the Torah gives us uh, opportunity to understand that that man in and of himself can choose to do good even though unfortunately he almost always chooses to do the wrong thing and uh, we could see this in other passages but I don't have time to show you all this but just recall from memory 
uh, that in Luke chapter 1, the parents of John the Baptist are described as blame, uh, blameless, keeping the commandments of God. Uh, were the uh, parents of John the Baptist saved before uh, Messiah, before they knew Messiah? I don't, I don't know that they were not saved, but ne nevertheless, we know that they were keeping the commandments of God. And it says so right here in, um, it's Luke chapter 1, verse 6, says, uh, speaking of uh, John the Baptist's parents, they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Now, we have two choices. Either they were saved or they were unsaved. But either way, they were keeping the commandments of God. They were righteous before God. I, I tend to think that they were not saved in this verse. Rather, they were simply good moral standing people who were also on the path of righteousness, meaning they would eventually find the teacher of righteousness who would be the cousin of their own son, right? Um, the cousin of the son that they were going to give birth to. But if I'm wrong, if they were in fact saved, meaning they had already, uh, God had already recognized them as having salvation, righteousness, well then nevertheless they were still able to walk blamelessly in all the commandments. So they were keeping the commandments. But what about Paul? What about Paul in, uh, he describes himself in Philippians as, um, as a righteousness regarding Torah. He was blameless. But he describes this particular position before he came to know Yeshua. So in Paul's own description of himself in the book of Philippians, Paul was keeping the commandments as well, even before he knew Yeshua. How about the rich young ruler in Matthew, Mark, and Luke? The rich young ruler is described as coming to Yeshua and asking Yeshua, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So from this question, we can surmise that the rich young ruler was unsaved at the time that he's asking Yeshua the questions. What does Yeshua give in by way of answer? Yeshua says, keep the commandments. And he gives like five or six of the Ten Commandments, you know, and most of them, in fact, all of them, describe the horizontal relationship between uh, between our fellow men. You love your father and your mother, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not murder, uh, things like that. And look at the rich young ruler's response. He says, all of these have I kept from my youth. What have I lack? What do I lack? And Yeshua sensing that this rich young ruler was on the path of righteousness. He had not arrived at the teacher. In fact, the rich young ruler didn't even understand that he's standing in front of the teacher. But he, he had not arrived. But Yeshua basically sensing that this man was on the right path. He was not saved yet, but he was on the path of righteousness. Yeshua challenged him a little bit further and said, Take all that you have, sell it, give it to the poor, and come and follow me. And then you'll have eternal life. And the rich young ruler was cut to the heart. Why? Because he had a lot of riches. And Yeshua was able to use the word of God, which is quick and powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword, and able to pierce to the dividing between soul and spirit. Yeshua was able to use the word of God to cut through right to the very heart of the issue of this rich young man, which was that even though he was on the path of righteousness and seeking after uh, uh, eternal life, nevertheless, his riches held a more prominent place in his heart than did the kingdom of God. He wanted his riches at that time, at least. He, he, he loved his riches more than he loved, um, being saved or, or reaching the teacher of righteousness or share, finding a place in the world to come. In other words, he didn't, he wanted salvation, but he wanted his riches more. And that's why he went away sorrowful because he had a lot of riches. Now, whether or not he turned later on and became saved, we don't know. The Torah doesn't tell us. It's silent. But the point I'm trying to make in recalling the parable, or I'm sorry, not the parable. It's an actual story is 
that um, this person was an unsaved man who was described as keeping the commandments of God. Thus, we know that there is that there's a if there's a possibility for a man to be on the path of righteousness, to walk into the commandments of God, to actually be rewarded for his walk, and yet not be saved yet. And I'll give a few more examples, and then I'll actually close. Also, recall that um, in the book of Acts, uh, Cornelius, Acts chapter 10, is described as someone whose alms went, went up before God, and actually God heard his prayers. Uh, and yet this man, later on in the chapter, quite possibly became saved when Peter came and preached the message to him. Was this man a righteous man even before he became saved? Meaning, was he walking in behavior of righteousness? Some Christians say he was saved before Peter came. Some say he got saved after Peter came. We're not sure about that. Uh, either way, we do know that this man was described as a person whose who's, who's good deeds were being seen by God and being rewarded by God, being recognized by God. And then, um, let's see, there is basically, uh, let's see, there was one more passage I wanted to talk about, but I can't remember it off the top of my head, so I think I'll stop there. So the point I'm trying to make is that there is a righteousness, there is a right living, there is the right thing to do that we really as men should be doing, but we fail to do that. And um, even though uh, we should be doing good, uh, we don't do the right thing. Read all through the book of Proverbs, read through the book of Psalms a few places. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any pe pe people. Um, God expects us to do right things, and yet we don't do right things. God has given us a moral responsibility, an ethical responsibility to govern the earth in a righteous manner as man. But we don't do the right thing. We fall headlong into sin time and time again. It's only by the grace of God that we are actually able as man, as unregenerate man, to do the right thing, to actually uh, find the path of righteousness, to get on the path and start walking on the path so that by the continued grace of God, God will eventually open our eyes as we reach and encounter the teacher of righteousness that we're going to read about in the book of Galatians. So my point is, I hope not to confuse anyone when I talk about behavior righteousness and forensic righteousness. What I'm simply saying is, I think that there are right things that we can do and must do, and these right things God actually rewards us for, but at the same time, um, there's only a genuine righteousness that can be found as we uh, graduate to faith the Messiah. And once we reach that point, then the righteousness that we do, the right works that we do, are actually the fulfillment of the law. And this fulfillment is the, the righteous fulfillment that we can only do as we have uh, reached the conclusion that Jesus is the Son of God. So I hope I'm not confusing anyone. And I hope that clears up some of the matter. So let's close. I went uh, a little longer tonight. Um, recall, uh, again, remember, just a reminder, we will have no uh, study for the next two weeks. Take a break. Take time off. Go back and listen to commentaries that you that you missed. Go back and uh, keep studying the book of Galatians on your own. And we'll meet again. Uh, let's see if I look at my calendar. Uh, let's say we're going to meet again not on the 12th and not on the 19th, but let's meet again on the 26th of August. Okay, so enjoy the break. Let's close in prayer. Abba, I bless your name and I thank you for the opportunity to share with the students and the challenge that awaits us as student and teacher alike, and that is to uh, uh, conduct our lives in a manner that is pleasing to you, to do the right thing even if we don't know God yet, to, to, to uh, govern ourselves in a manner that is 
ethically and morally righteous uh, so that you will continue to put us on the path by your grace and lead us down the path of righteousness like the the uh, the uh, the Pythagogos, and so that we can in, encounter the teacher of righteousness and reach the goal uh, by faith. Lord, help us to understand that it's not by works that we do that we are saved. Help us to understand that it's not the right deeds that we would do in life, even as unregenerate men, that's going to bring us into the saving grace. But yet, we know also that once we come to faith in Messiah, that you have not only empowered us, but expect us to do right things. And so thank you for the challenges that lay before us. Empower us to continue to walk in holiness. Empower us to continue to appreciate the, the, the Spirit's work in our life so that we can be pleasing to you, so that we can turn from sin, so that we can light, lead a life that is empowered by the Spirit, so that we can be a light to those around us. We'll be careful to give you the praise and the glory of Bashem Yeshua. Amen. That concludes our show for today. It is my desire that this continuing series of teachings will assist the average non-Jewish believer or new Messianic Jewish believer in his desire to become a more mature child of God. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth, and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them. And he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations, as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. Because the Torah is written on the hearts of all who truly name the name of Yeshua as Lord and Savior, it is meant to be followed to the best of our ability. We have no reason for fear of condemnation or the trappings of legalism. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song were written, produced, and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For more information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y-E-S-H-U-A number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com. <laughs>